Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 15. And as you do so, I want to uh, thank you on behalf of the staff. So not just myself, but Brian, Rick, and Chris. Uh, we want to thank you for the thoughtful words and generous gifts received at the fellowship meal last Sunday. We meet on a Tuesday, every Tuesday for staff meeting, and so we were talking about it a wee bit. And certainly uh, the consensus is, without a doubt, uh, we are privileged to serve among you here at Grace Community Church. And so again, our, our sincere thanks. That was, that was a wonderful time, a wonderful moment, and we all certainly appreciated it. Have you found Romans chapter 15? Okay, we're not ready for it. I want to give you three comments before we turn to this portion of God's Word. Make three comments. The first is this. Most of us know it to be true. All Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, and therefore all Scripture, this book, is profitable. Amen. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired. All Scripture, therefore, is profitable. It necessarily means that Romans chapter 15 is profitable. That's the first thing I want to say. Second thing is this. Not all Scripture is written in the same way. Therefore, not all Scripture is profitable in the same way. Did I lose anyone? You're a thinking bunch. You can handle this. Not all Scripture is written in the same way. Therefore, not all Scripture is profitable in the same way. Just stay within the confines of the book of Romans. For the most part, in this book, Paul is prescriptive. Prescriptive. That means he prescribes. Uh, another way we might say this, he stipulates doctrines and commands. And so most of the letter is prescriptive. The apostle, as he writes, is prescribing. Here, this is what you must believe. I am stipulating this. And this is what you must do. I am stipulating this. I am prescribing this. All right. When you come to the introduction and conclusion, however, these portions are no longer prescriptive. They are descriptive. Meaning what? Paul is not prescribing what we must believe, what we must do. He is simply describing events and circumstances. And so we need to be careful. This is my third point. We need to be careful when it comes to our interpretation of those portions of the Bible, Romans 15 namely, which are description, in which Paul isn't giving any commands. He's not explaining any doctrine. He's simply describing, for the most part, circumstances that characterize and mark his own life, where he's going, what he's been doing, what he's going to be doing, uh, what his plans are. So we need to be careful. In the verses we're going to read, Paul's going to say that he plans to go to Spain. I am not to conclude from that that I'm supposed to go to Spain. Volleyball, beach volleyball ministry on the beaches in southern Spain. Well, there you have it. Paul went to Spain. Ergo, I'm supposed to go to Spain. No, that'd be making a mess of the text. It's not prescriptive. It is descriptive. He's just describing events. And therefore, when we come and we interpret and apply 
we need to be a little careful. We need to understand that, yes, all Scripture is profitable, but it's not profitable in the same way. And so as we look at the life and example of Paul, yes, we're trying to learn from him, but we need to be careful as we derive lessons and principles and make sure these lessons and principles are buttressed supported by elsewhere in Scripture, portions that are prescriptive. You didn't know you were going to learn two words this morning. But there you have it. They're important. They really are. Prescriptive and descriptive. The number of errors and downright silliness I have witnessed in my short life due to a failure to distinguish between these two when we come to the Word of God and therefore interpreting and applying appropriately. Okay? Have you found Romans 15? Still not ready for it. I want to say one other thing. Uh, we all have, um, I'm assuming this is true. It's true of me. I'm assuming it's true of all of us. Um, we all have places that hold a special, I don't know, that conjure up special memories. Uh, places of special significance. It might be a home it might be a yard, it might be a porch, it might be a cafe, it might be a beach, it might be a church, I suppose it might even be a, a cemetery. Uh, just places where our minds go once in a while, maybe even frequently, uh, places of special significance. It might be because of the amount of time we spent there. And so the place might hold special significance uh, because we spent an unbelievable amount of time there as a child, as a youth in our younger years. It might be of special significance because of a momentous event that occurred there, a family vacation, an engagement, uh, a birth. You couples, the first time you held hands, Port Dalhousie. Allison was sneaky quick. Before I knew what was going on, she grabbed my hand. <laughs> Momentous events, things that happen um, that are just special as we look back. These were moments, defining moments in our lives. And therefore, the place by association still conjures up sweet memories. Or it might be because of a person, or dare I say, people associated with a place, people that are no longer with us, and yet we associate them, their memory, uh, with that place, that moment there. And therefore, these places can just, oh, they can just elevate us and take us beyond the realm of time at times, can't they, as we reflect upon them. I have to say, um, I have to believe, I have to believe that for the Apostle Paul, uh, one such place was somewhere on that road between Damascus and Jerusalem. That as he was an old man uh, in a prison cell in Rome awaiting his execution, that undoubtedly, there were other places, but undoubtedly, I don't know if it was a curve in the road, maybe a, a gradual incline or a, or a severe valley, but somewhere on that road between Damascus and Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Damascus, 
his mind would often return. You see, prior to that place, prior to arriving at that place, uh, the Apostle Paul was, I mean, he, he, had been full, he was just full of himself. Let's face it, folks, he was. He was full of himself. Uh, he was a man, as he reflected upon his own testimony, his own, his own life journey in Re- Romans chapter 7, uh, he reminds us that there, there just came a moment in his life where that commandment, you shall not covet, became alive to him. And, and he had been troubled for some time and troubled as he considered who he was, as he looked back on his life, and as he came face to face with the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And the Spirit of God would not give him peace. And he realized that he had lived his life craving power. He had lived his life craving notoriety, craved his, just craving fame, influence. How else do we explain his violent persecution of the church? I mean, when he writes that epistle to Timothy, and as he's reflecting on that place, that point somewhere between Jerusalem and Damascus, he reminds Peter, uh, Timothy, he says, look, and those days prior to that moment, I was a violent oppressor. I was someone who actually derived satisfaction from inflicting pain on others. Why? Because I was someone who was determined to control others. I was someone who was self-absorbed. I was someone who lusted after power and notoriety. Oh, but that commandment would not give me rest. You shall not covet. And I was searching and looking everywhere. But at that place, on that road, at that moment, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appeared to me. And not only did he appear to me, but he spoke to me. Not only did he speak to me, but he called me. Calling me, he saved me. Saving me, he converted me. And again to Timothy, years later, he could write the following. I experienced God's grace, hyper-plentiful grace, superabounding grace in my life. God's grace, God's mercy overflowed to me at that place, at that moment, where I came face to face with the reality of who I was as a sinner. I came face to face with the Lord Jesus and his claims upon me. I began to finally understand the significance of his crucifixion upon the cross and his resurrection, that in the Lord Jesus, I can find a savior. I can find someone who has paid the penalty for my sin and rebellion. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, I can know forgiveness. Oh, the grace of God. The mercy of God overflowed to me a sinner. Oh, a special place at a special moment of time because of a special transforming relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of effect did that have on the life of Paul? What kind of impact did it make? I mean, you go back to chapter 12, verse 1. You remember, you recall where he exhorts this church. You know, I beg you, I'm pleading with you. By the mercies of God. So I'm pleading with you on the basis of the mercy of God that overflows to sinners. I'm pleading with you to now offer up your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What did that look like in the life of Paul? 
How did the grace of God, the mercy of God that overflowed like an overwhelming flood and entered every crevice of his being, capturing his mind and his heart and his will, how did this now pour forth in his life? Have you found Romans 15? Now we're ready for it. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 22. And keep that special place in view where Paul first tasted of the grace of God. This is the reason, he writes, why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now what has happened to this point? <coughs> Excuse me, or rather, what has Paul expressed to this point? Basically this, his ministry in the east is done. He says it in the preceding verses. I have ministered all the way from Jerusalem. If you can picture on the map Israel, you've got the Mediterranean Sea right here, just to the east of it, city of Jerusalem. I have ministered all the way from Jerusalem up through Syria, across modern-day Turkey, across the Aegean Sea, into Greece, up Macedonia, as far as the Balkans, Illyricum. I have preached the gospel I have seen converts, people won for Christ, and I have established churches. I was not appointed to lay another man's foundation. Undoubtedly, the rest of the disciples, the apostles, were ministering in these regions somewhere around. Undoubtedly, those who had been converted were now ministering, and they were laying a foundation. Well, I have not been called to lay another, on another man's foundation, to build another man's foundation. I have been called to lay the foundation. Therefore, my ministry in these regions, it's done. It's over, I'm finished. I'm finished with the Eastern Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. And now what he says beginning in verse 22 through to verse 29 is basically, look, I've got a threefold plan. And this threefold plan focuses on three places. Did you catch it? In chronological in order, not sequential order as it's found in the text, but chronological as he plans to visit these places. The first is Jerusalem. That's where I'm going, number one. Secondly, I'm then going to come to you, the city of Rome. And then thirdly, God willing, I'm heading to Spain, the Western Empire. And so you see, I have finished my ministry in the east, just as I use that city of Antioch, more or less in Syria, I use it as the base of my operations to launch those three missionary journeys. And I've preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. You've got churches now established throughout that region. You've got lots of other preachers and ministers going out. I'm done. I'm now going to come west, and I'm going to use Rome now as the base of my operations in the west. And I'm going to reach as far as I can, the Western Empire, Spain. But before I do so, I'm heading to Jerusalem. There you have it, Paul's example. 
When we look at Paul's example, what we see is a man transformed by the grace of God. What we see is a man, yes, reflecting on that, that point of time, that place on that road from Jerusalem to Damascus, where the grace of God overflowed for him. We now see this grace of God flowing out into his life, touching and influencing all that he does. And we witness it wonderfully here in his threefold plan. Work through them quickly with me. Again, number one, what's his first plan? He plans to visit Jerusalem. Why? So that he can assist the poor. Look what he says in verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. Aid to the saints. For Macedonia, churches in Macedonia, churches in Achaia, you know, where I've been traveling recently, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So have you got it? That's his first plan. Where is he going firstly? Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Because he wants to assist the poor. He has been engaged in his final missionary journey. He's been establishing churches, revisiting other churches, which he established on his previous journeys. And wherever he has gone, he has informed these churches of the need back in Jerusalem. We don't know the details. Circumstances must have been such, the famine must have been such, that the church was unable to provide for its own poor. There was a need. There was a heart cry for help. And Paul, because of compassion, Paul, because he is a man transformed by the hyper-plentiful grace of God, he has made it his ambition, he has made it his goal to collect this offering, not for his own good, but so that he might take it in hand personally and deliver it to the saints at Jerusalem. There is a valuable lesson there for us. Simply this, once we have tasted of God's grace overflowing to us, it will show forth in what? A desire to help those in need. Once we have tasted of the hyper-plentiful grace of God, we will only ever ask two questions. Are you ready for these? They're not mine. They're straight from the Word of God. Question number one is this, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? That's the first question I'll be asking myself all the time, 24-7. Right now, pray tell. What do I have that I did not receive? What do I possess at this moment that God himself has not handed me on a platter? That's a transforming question. Second question will be this. Out of Psalms 116 verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? That is a life. We see it lived out in the Apostle Paul. That is a life transformed by grace. A life wrestling, working through these two questions. What do I have that I did not receive. 
How much have I received? Oh, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Having visited Jerusalem, Paul's plan is to head where? Rome. Next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll arrive at whether or not Paul actually saw these plans through to fruition. He actually does, but not as he envisioned them. But for the moment, these are his plans as he prays, as he plans, as he lays them out before the Lord. Yes, Jerusalem first to assist the poor. Then next up, I'm going to head to Rome, a place I've never been. And why does he want to get to Rome? One reason, to serve the church. Look at verse 24. I hope to see you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now down to verse 28. When therefore I have completed this, in other words, once I've made it to Jerusalem, handed over this offering to assist the poor, I've delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. He's writing to Rome. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Back in chapter 1, his introduction. He says there he wants to get to Rome. Why? That he might impart some spiritual blessing, some spiritual gift to them. What does he have in view? I think he has in view his preaching. Basically, it's why he's written this epistle. He's given them his sermon. He's written them and he said, look, here's my sermon. Here's the content of my teaching. And yes, I'm going to Jerusalem. Then, Lord willing, I'm going to come to you. And when I come to you, I want us to be edified one by the other. And I want God to use my gift in order to strengthen you, equip you, that I might be used to serve you. Well, the lesson in the life and example of Paul is obvious, is it not? When we taste, when we experience, when we know firsthand the overflowing grace of God in our lives, it will show itself forth how not only in a desire to assist those in need, the poor, as Paul describes them in this text, but in a desire to serve the church. It too takes us back to chapter 12. It takes us back to verses 3 through 8 where Paul rhymes off all those spiritual gifts, remember? And he says basically, look, we've all got a gift. We're all gifted in some way. And then he gives the commandment, let's use them. That's his command. It goes against the grain a wee bit. We're swimming against the tide when we think along these lines today in the church as it's characterized here in the West because the prevailing mentality, if you're in the care group Wednesday night, you got that in that chapter, didn't you? Psalm 122. The prevailing mindset in our day and age when it comes to the church is simply what? What's in it for me? How does the church serve me? How does the church meet my needs? How does the church satisfy my demands? That's turning the thing on its head. The church doesn't exist for me, for my needs to be met. The church actually exists that I might be used of God to meet other people's needs. That's transformative. That's why the church is here. The church is here that I might become a part of it. The church is here that I might get engaged in it. I might get involved in it. My posture, my attitude when I come to the church and the local gathering of God's people is not simply what am I going to walk away with. No, when I come to gather with God's people and I think of his people here in the context of Grace Community Church, after all, it's where we are, isn't it? The great question, the great burning question is this. That when I walk away from God's people, what have I done to serve them? How have I been used to minister to them? Oh, that is the obvious effect 
of the transforming power of the grace of God when we taste again of his overflowing mercy. We taste of his compassion. His compassion spills out. It just does. And yeah, we want to get to Jerusalem to assist the poor. And yeah, we want to get to Rome to serve the church. And thirdly, we want to get where, says Paul? Spain to do what? Evangelize the lost. You look again with me at chapter 15, verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on. I think he's thinking financially there. On my journey there by you, you skip down to verse 28. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered that to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. It's just the way the man thinks. I mean, you think of the Roman Empire, it's eventually going to divide in two sections, isn't it? West and east. The west will be primarily Latin, the east will be primarily Greek. And we already see this thinking in the Apostle Paul. He's completed the Eastern Empire. He's been just about everywhere. Again, Jerusalem to Illyricum. And now he is looking further afield. He wants to proclaim Christ where Christ has not yet been named. He wants to see people and meet people and find himself in a context where he's actually proclaiming the Lord Jesus for the first time to people. He wants to be used, yes, in that way of laying a foundation. And so he's thinking in terms of Spain. I mean, you think of it historically, right? The great Latin-based languages. You've got your Italian, you move west, you've got your French, and then your Spanish, and then your Portuguese. We don't know for certain, but you dip into Eusebius. I mentioned him earlier this morning in the Sunday school. And you read some of the things he records there. And apparently, yes, Paul does go to Rome. He does make it to Rome. We know that from the book of Acts. He doesn't make it there as he envisions. He goes in chains as a prisoner. But apparently he is released at some point. And according to church history, where does he go? He makes a beeline straight for Spain. What he did there, what he accomplished there, a closed book to us. But there he was, driven, compelled by what? The overflowing grace of God. Oh, that place of significance. Somewhere. We have no idea where. Somewhere on that road from Jerusalem to Damascus, where the resurrected, ascended, glorified Lord Jesus had a rendezvous with Paul. He visited him from on high. And Paul, who had been struggling with the ugliness of his sin was at that moment overwhelmed by the beauty of God's grace. And it changed the man forever. And we see it, don't we, played out in these three priorities. A man compelled to get to Jerusalem to meet the needs of the poor. A man driven to then get to Rome to serve among God's people, to be used of God to strengthen up that church. And then finally, by God's good grace, to move into territories unknown, Spain, that he might proclaim the gospel to the lost. Oh, that, isn't it? Surely, that is a glimpse of the transforming effect of the overflowing grace of God in the life of a sinner. 
You know, we think about this, we um, think about the depths of the gospel. We think about its significance, yes, eternal life, the hope of eternal life. Um, We think of its significance, peace with God right now. We think of what it means in terms of knowing sins forgiven, what it means to be one with the Lord Jesus, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to know the Spirit speaking to us by the Word of God and directed by the Word of God. And we enumerate and we number and we recall all of these blessings. Oh, what it means to be in Christ. And we recall, don't we? I mean, for some of us, it it is. For some of us, it's a little easier. You know, saved a little later in life. And the contrast between then and now, well, it's just so stark, isn't it? I mean, it is, you know, night and day. Some of us saved when we were younger. And when you think of those special places, one of those special places I often go back to is the street out front of my childhood home. And at uh, five years of age, in the simplicity of a five-year-old boy, first time crying out to God. That is a place I often go back to and I can recall. But there wasn't the stark contrast between my life before and my life after. And yet, even those of us who've been saved a long time and maybe the contrast isn't as sharp, still, even as we've wrestled with sin as believers and as the Spirit of God has pricked our conscience and shown us our sin as we've grown older, Oh, how this has heightened our appreciation of God's grace and God's mercy. How this has convinced us time and time again that our happiness is found in God alone. It's the great question of our times. It is the great issue of our times. How can a man be happy? How can a woman um, be happy as we look around at a lost world, as we engage with unbelievers, we can only be overwhelmed, at least occasionally, if not frequently, uh, by their plight as we recall and remember our own. You know, as I I look out and as I engage with people, um, even people I meet for the first time or old friends still on Facebook I'm still engaging with, unbelievers, uh, always compelled with this question, how can a person be happy? Because, you know, everyone is trying to be happy. It is the starting point for every conversation. What makes you happy? What do you think will make you happy? As I interact with people, I, I, I engage with people. I discover time and time again the truth of that question the psalmist asks. It's a troubling question out of Psalm 4, verse 2. The psalmist asks, how long? How long will you love delusions and seek after lies? How long will you love delusions and seek after lies? And how our hearts should burn within us as we look out and we engage with others and we see others whose lives are simply a delusion because the question How can a person be happy? Uh, Their answer is simply a delusion. I shared it with you a few weeks ago, didn't I? That survey from the United Nations. 
They put it out every few years. What are the happiest places to live on earth? Happiest countries? Uh, number one, if memory serves me correctly, Denmark. Out of 156 countries, Denmark, uh, the last, Burundi. Uh, how do they gauge happiness? Seven ingredients, here they are. Number one, life expectancy. Number two, social support. Number three, freedom to make choices. Number four, four low corruption. Five, generosity. Six, less inequality. And number seven, of course, a high gross domestic product. In other words, they're defining happiness on the basis of what? Comfort. How comfortable am I? The, the great betrayal when it, came to that, when it came to that survey was the country Greece. Because the last time this survey was done, Greece was somewhere in the top 15. Now Greece is near the bottom. Why? Because it's lost all its comforts. Absolute economic stagnation, a disaster. And the country's in a tizzy. People are in a tizzy. And all of a sudden, happiness is gone. Happiness becomes meaningless. Why? Because it has been attached and defined by earthly comforts. Equally delusional is what? Others in our day. Seeking happiness, trying to answer that question, yet not necessarily on the basis of earthly comforts. They might even eschew earthly comforts, but it's, uh, it's just as prevalent. Uh, those defining happiness on the basis of pleasure, right? You know them. I know them. There might very well be some here for all I know. Uh, pleasure. They've bought into the great lie. Again, it is the question that the psalmist asks, how long, how long will you follow delusions and seek after lies? They've bought into the great lie. The great lie of sin is what? That the next one will be even better. It's the great lie. It's the great lie of pleasure, sinful pleasure. The lie is this. The next one will finally make you happy. The next high will make you happy. Finally, right? The next sexual encounter will finally make you happy, satisfy you. The next naked image on the computer, well, it's finally going to do it. The next raise, the next thousand, the next million, the next whatever it is you're collecting, gathering, it's going to do it. The next marriage, the next this, the next that, the next drug. And it starts with marijuana, doesn't it? It moves on to this. And now I, I, I'm overwhelmed by the number of people in our own communities. This meth thing is just unbelievable. How do you explain it? People have bought into a lie. The next high will do it. The next drug, the next experience, the next pleasure, just the next, the next, the next, the next. And on it goes and on it goes and on it goes. How long will you love delusions and seek after lies? But you know, at times it's not even that drastic. You know, as you engage in people, yeah, you get some, how can I be happy? Comforts. As long as I'm living a prosperous, healthy life. Lots of people like that. Pleasure, yeah, this, that, or the next thing, we see that all around us too. But at times it has a far more uh, acceptable face on it. Uh, we might kind of call it philanthropy. I was struck with this just this past week. I was reading something, 10 Steps to Happiness, put out by some psychologist. I can't remember the name. 10 Steps to Happiness. Here they go. Number one, find your peeps. Love that word. <laughs> find your peeps. All right. You know who they are. Don't let others judge you. That's number two. Stay optimistic. 
Avoid materialism. Sounds pretty good. Get involved. Give. Share your talents. Appreciate the small things. Forgive others. Invest in relationships. That actually sounds better than pretty good. It sounds really good, doesn't it? What's the problem with it? It's like Swiss cheese. It's not going to hold any water. It's just, it's just going to... What's wrong with it? It's detached from any ultimate reality. Why should I do any of that? And if I do any of that, what does it actually ultimately mean? It's detached from eternity. It's detached from reality. And so ultimately, it can't provide any happiness. But please understand this. This is, this is the thinking of the age. I put it to you. I don't think I'm far off the mark here. That the vast majority of people find themselves in one of these three categories, or perhaps these three categories overlapping. Comfort, pleasure, philanthropy, thinking that there is something in there that will ultimately provide the answer to the question of questions. How can a person be happy? And yet they all prove the truism of the psalmist, how long will you love delusions and seek after lies? Were you reading the Heidelberg Catechism this past week? No, no one was reading the Heidelberg Catechism this past week. I wasn't reading the Heidelberg Catechism the past week, but I did recall uh, the second question of the Catechism is this. How many things are necessary for you to know so that you may live happily and die happily? That's a great question. Oh, I pray you're paying attention. That is a fabulous question. Just the way it's worded. How many things are necessary for you to know so that you may live happily and die happily? The answer is threefold. Here's number one. First, I must know how great my sins and miseries are. It seems like a paradox. It is at the beginning. It isn't at the ending. But if I want to truly be happy, I want to know real satisfaction, real fulfillment, real happiness, real blessedness. This is the first thing I must come to grips with. I must know how great my sins and miseries are. I was listening to a couple of sermons this past week on Luke 15 and really stirred by them. You know, the story of the prodigal. It's not really the story of the prodigal. It's the story of two sons. You know, those two sons. I have identified with both at different times and junctures in my life. Can anybody else relate to that? You got the first son, the younger son. And uh, what's he after? Hedonism. He's the hedonist. Father, I'm out of here. Give me what's due me. Um, Land, livestock, whatever. Turn it all into cash. Give it to me now. I'm leaving. I'm living however I please. Oh, the depth of sin in that young man's heart. What was he in effect saying to his father? You're dead to me. That's what he was saying. You are dead to me. Give me what I think is rightfully mine, and I'm leaving, and I'm never coming back. The hedonist. But you have an older brother. His problem isn't the hedonism. His problem is the legalism. He sticks around. His younger brother eventually comes back, penitent, right? He repents of his sin, confesses his sin, seeks the forgiveness of his father. Father throws that wonderful feast, kills the fattened calf, 
gives him that glorious robe, sets a ring upon his hand. The brother, older brother comes in from the field, witnesses it all, refuses to go in. His father comes out. Oh, my lost son has come back. Come in and celebrate with us. And do you remember the older brother's response? He wants nothing to do with it. Uh, what's his attitude toward his father? That I have served you all these years. I've served you as a legalist all these years. You owe me. At that moment when he refuses to go in and celebrate the return of his younger brother, do you know what he was saying to his father? You're dead to me, is what he was saying to his father. There is the predicament of the human race, my friend. If you're not a Christian, you find yourself in one or the other, and perhaps you jump back and forth all the time. It is either the cry of the hedonist, I will live as I please, you're dead to me, God. Or it's the cry of the legalist, I think I have this figured out, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And at the end of the day, I think God will owe me. But in actual fact, God himself is dead to you. Oh, the depth of our sin and the depth of our misery before a holy God. There is no happiness until we come to grips with it. Heidelberg Catechism says, secondly, I must know how I may be delivered from all my sins and misery. I must know how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And this brings us, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the axis mundi. Have you heard that expression before? The axis mundi, the world's axis, axis mundi. What is this? When you look at all of the religions of the world, and invariably you will find in all the religions of the world there are these places these places where it is believed there is a connection between the spiritual and the material. There is a connection between the heavenly and the earthly. That's why mountains are so prominent in many of the religions of the world, because these are the places, the connection between heaven and earth. It's why the pyramids were so central to the Egyptian worship. It's why the totem pole I mean, you go from the one extreme, something so huge as a, as a pyramid, to the simple totem pole, the same thing for Native Americans. The idea was a totem pole was, yes, this interconnect, this place where heaven and earth met, the spiritual and the material. I mean, C.S. Lewis, he depicted this. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. What do you think the lampstand is? What do you think the lampstand is? What do you think he's saying? There is a connection somewhere. But the thing is, Christians, we realize what? That this, this axis mundi isn't a place, it is not a place where we attempt to reach up to God. It is a person in whom God has reached down to us. That makes us a unique religion. It makes Christianity unbelievably unique. Because we affirm that God himself has become man. And God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, has walked on this earth. And God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, has given himself as a sacrifice upon Calvary's cross to pay the penalty for my hedonism and my legalism, to pay the penalty for my sin, to absolve me, that God himself might forgive me, that I might have that Damascus Road-like experience. When, yes, understanding my sinfulness, 
the ugliness of my sin. I am now overwhelmed by the beauty of God's grace, the grace of God that overflows to me. And what a transforming effect this has. I hope this isn't too much of a distraction, but it just spoke so powerfully to me. Uh, beauty and the Beast. Do you remember it? I got the kids' attention. Some of you adults, too, all of a sudden perked up. Beauty and the Beast. I remember being in Florida last year, and we went and saw a little musical dancey thing with Beauty and the Beast, and yes, I did quite enjoy it. There is a song. There's a song in Beauty and the Beast. You know the story. There's the curse, and the prince turned into the beast, but also all of his servants, humans, turned into what? China, saucers, right? Cups, candlesticks, chairs, all these things. But at one point, all these clocks, chairs, and candlesticks sing the following. Listen to this. Not penned by a Christian, but listen to this. Oh, we will be dancing again when the curse is removed. We'll be dancing again. We'll be twirling again. We'll be whirling around with such ease when we're human again. Only human again. We'll go waltzing those old one, two, threes. We'll be floating again. We'll be gliding again, stepping, striding as fine as you please. Like a real human does, I'll be all that I was on that glorious morn when we're finally reborn and we're all of us human again. Isn't that remarkable? Even even the unbeliever knows deep down inside something is not right. Something is not right. Something is dreadfully amiss. It is simply this. As an unbeliever, you're alienated from the only source of true happiness. It is God Almighty. And there is only one way back to that only source of true happiness and it is through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new birth that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is the answer. Second answer to that question. I must know how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And now here is the third answer to that question from the catechism. How many things are necessary for you to know that you may live happily and die happily? Here's number three. I must know how I shall express my gratitude for God for such deliverance. I must know how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. And that brings us full circle right back to our text. That in the life of the Apostle Paul, he had that place again on the road between Jerusalem and Damascus. A moment in time where he came to know firsthand the overflowing grace of God. And what a transforming effect it had upon him. And what a life of gratitude he lived. As he made his plans for Jerusalem. Yes, to assist the poor. He made his plans for Rome. Yes, to serve the church. And he made his plans for Spain to evangelize the lost. A life of gratitude to God for such glorious deliverance. I shared it with you last week. Just a line. Let me conclude with it again today. That wee line from the poem. Do you remember it from last week? It was simply this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's actually penned by a man named Charles Studd. Late 1800s. Famous. He was a cricket. He played cricket for, for England. 
and um, international cricketer, gave it all up, turned his back on it all, became a missionary, and then ended up serving years, quite remarkably, served for years first in China, then India, then the Congo. And he wrote that little poem, beautiful poem, that about eight or nine stanzas in it. Let me just share three or four. And I think this will provide an apt conclusion to this sermon. Here we go. Two little lines, writes Charles Studd. Two little lines I heard one day. Traveling along life's busy way. Bringing conviction to my heart. And from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know, I'll know to say, t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We do acknowledge our, our need for you to uh, give us understanding and to help us even in applying it. And so we acknowledge it right now and pray that all that has been spoken, you might be well pleased to take. And as you look upon the people gathered here, apply it according to the need of each man, each woman, each boy, each girl. Uh, we pray especially for, uh, for those who are outside of Christ in our midst right now. And pray that something that has been spoken might have struck a chord. And pray your spirit might use it to bring about conviction for sin. And to point them to the cross and to point them to your love poured out upon the cross in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for your children here, may we be encouraged by the example of Paul and may we be challenged by the example of Paul to give our lives to you, uh, to live our lives with your glory, uh, your kingdom, your people in view ever before us, to live our lives transformed by your glorious gospel. We ask it of you, seek it from you in Christ's matchless name. Amen.